so when I think about what I'll call resilience, um, I've learned and I'll say learned because I, I think there's an element of like resilience and the ability to handle adversity that that certainly can be innate. But I also think it's like a muscle and you can improve it over time. And as I said, I don't think I always had the healthiest level of resilience, right? Those barriers or walls that I put up um, around myself. And I had to learn how to develop a healthier way of handling adversity. And for me, first of all, kind of first step in that is being really clear on what goals and objectives I have for myself. They can be small baby steps. Like I'm going to lose five or 10 pounds by a certain date. It could be the career aspirations or starting a new business, whatever the goal or objective is. Number one, the sex, second one for me is to be incredibly self-aware and understand where the actions, thoughts, or emotions I'm having, um, like what's caused that. And that's, again, why I try and understand people's why, their lived experience, what's what's driving them. And then the next step in that, the third step would be then once I have an understanding of that, trying to model the positive thoughts or the actions, behavior, or language that I want to be or I want to see that's one step further towards that goal or objective. And then the last step in that process for me is giving myself permission to fail. We are going to stumble. There's going to be things that come in front of us that we can't control. And even if we can, we're not, we're imperfect human beings. And so giving ourselves permission to fail, stand back up, dust ourselves off. If you have an emotion and I'm very quick to emotion, whether it's anger, sadness, happiness, have the emotion but then anchor yourself back on that beginning, you know, step, which is what's my goal? What's the objective? One foot, you know, you know, or one, you know, roll, um, you know, sort of if you're in a wheelchair, one, one proverbial step at a time. Do you need encouragement to turn tragedies into your own triumphant life story? If so, this podcast is for you. you. Listen to powerful guests who have persevered through challenges so you can gain strength to build your championship life. The host of Professor of Perseverance Podcast, Dr. James Perdue. Hey, come on in. It's time for us to get some education. Fire, fire me up. All right. You know, we got things sometimes in life, you know, we have struggles and what do we do? We need to whine and cry and bitch about it, or we can overcome it, move forward, do the best we can. I mean, sometimes we struggle like this dude here coming through. Watch out. Oh, it's that time of the year, right? So watch out. It's that time of the year. We got one trying to get away from the old cooker and everything. So let's be careful out there. All right, so buddy, I hope you get away with it. We'll see what happens here in the future. So, hey, yep. Yeah, so, you know, we're struggling, and so we need we need somebody to help us get through. We think back what uh, somebody on the podcast said, and go, you know, they can help me get through this. We've done something. All right, today our guest has overcome adversity and trauma at an early age, has built resiliency. You're going to talk about some childhood trauma that went on, a trait that has remained with her throughout her life and has helped. Excel as a corporate executive, mentor, and leader, for which she is often characterized and dynamic and unstoppable as a characteristic. And so uh, let's go get her on here. Welcome on the show here, Victoria Peltier, uh, author of the book, Unstoppable Stories of Change Makers Who Have Dared to Make a Difference. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. 
I'm glad you're here and everything like that. Hey, I didn't mention to you earlier, but I'm not a professional at this. I just have fun. We <laughs> we try to learn and help other people, and we go from there. Hey, Brittany, thank you for coming in. Say, hey, tell uh, AJ I said, hey. All right. So, uh, all right, uh, Victoria. So uh, we're glad you're here, and we're only a few days from that turkey day, so we have to watch out that turkey. He He's, he's on the loose. So uh, have to get uh, we have to go see if we can catch him or not. So all right, Victoria. So uh, thank you for being here again. And um, your story, I'm glad I could see the I can see the ending here where you're at so far with what you sent me. So but let's uh, catch us up on how you got to where you're at today. Yeah, happy to. And what's really interesting is that uh, there was a time in place where I was very uncomfortable sharing more about my lived experience. In fact. Uh, I, you know, was built sort of walls and barriers around myself to protect myself and insulate me from it. But as I started coaching and mentoring more and more people, I recognized that for me to share um, my professional and personal, both failures and successes and what had gotten me there, I had to start sharing a little bit more of my, what I call my why, right? Long before Simon Sinek became famous with his viral TED Talk, Start With Why, I was trying to understand other people's lived experience because I had significant challenge myself. That was what propelled and drove me forward, particularly from a career perspective. So with that preamble, I'll share that I was born to a drug addicted teenage mother who abused me severely, pushing me upstairs, downstairs, a cigarette in my eye, wore a patch for a number of months. I was in and out of her care in the child welfare system. And I was fortunate to be adopted by a loving family who certainly was far from abusive for me, who loved me dearly. However, it wasn't sort of all sunshine and roses from a socioeconomic perspective. They were, I always provided. I never had food insecurity. I always had clothes on my back, but they came from Kmart. I never had, um, you know, what my friends had. I didn't get to go on school trips. Uh, I, I lived with this fear of no longer abuse, but more so the fear of uh, rejection and what that meant when the person's clo person closest to you, your mother in particular, um, was so harmful. And I attribute that to me leading this, what I call it, this unstoppable life, this life of, you know, what I've, you know, coined no, no excuses. And I sign a lot of my social media uh, posts with that. And it drives my children nuts, I will tell you that. But I believe you have a choice in terms of, you know, how you get up from uh, adversity and obstacles and challenges that come in front of you and you in terms of how you're going to move forward with that. And it's taken me many years to learn to have a much healthier level of resilience versus just those barriers or walls I originally put up. Well, when we put those barriers and walls to help keep us together to help keep us, you know, what don't say, you know, you know, uh, into our, our own boat area where we're not rocked, the boat's not being rocked. And so it's our comfort zone when we built those up. But we also can realize when we can let those down, that uh, there's a bigger world out there and we can really have some fun, but we can still be hesitant and then go from there. But yeah, yeah, those barriers are put up for a reason and we understand that. Yeah, you know, for me, I had some early lessons. I, I said that 
um, you know, it's what propelled me from a career perspective. I, I started working when I was 11 in large part because my family didn't have a lot of money. So if I wanted extra things, um, it was on me to buy it. Uh, but that was the area that I knew I could control. My ability to show up, perform well, have a very strong work ethic. And that's what propelled me to, you know, get promoted at a very early age. But that, those barriers and walls around me, I learned, I became an executive at 24. I was promoted to chief operating officer of a company I was working at, which was a pretty big stretch role. So I had a bit of imposter syndrome for sure in that role. I was also the only woman. I was the youngest by probably two decades. But that fear and those barriers, I kind of showed up all business all the time. I never would have shown vulnerability for fear of seeming weak, you know, mm -hmm. showing emotions. And I, uh, I found out uh, several years later that my nickname was the Iron Maiden. And there you uh, go. I know. Well, on one hand, I remember at the time I was like, am I insulted by this? Is this a compliment? And, and, and I think it was a, like, it was a backhanded compliment on one hand, I'm kind of known as the turnaround queen. I take distressed businesses or business units and help make them perform. I'm very strong at managing and coaching people to perform, but people didn't see the emotion behind that. I've been through 18 murders and acquisitions in my career. Those come with really difficult decisions and reorganizations. And, mm -hmm. and early in my career, I again, I didn't show that despite the fact that I had the ability to make those decisions and execute it was still actually pretty painful for me. And there was emotion behind the impact that some of those decisions had on people's lives. And that was kind of a moment for me where I realized to, you know, build trusted relationship with the people that I engaged with and worked with every day. I needed to not only show emotion, I need to be vulnerable. I needed to share a little bit more of myself. And I'm going to go back a little bit here when you were talking about growing up and your clothes from Kmart and whatnot, where the people were, you know, getting... More, I don't know what back then were the higher big shops to shop for then. But uh, I grew up in the time when uh, I was cooler than I thought I was at that time. <laughs> we were so poor, we were getting from the Goodwill. Oh. And people, my me growing up, we were made fun of how poor you were going to the Goodwill and get it. Well, shoot, man, it's the popular thing to, to do. People are always going to Goodwill now and getting, uh, you know, the bargain deals. You know, and, and these kids are proud that they've gone to the Goodwill and got this. Yeah, so I was cooler back then than I thought of. You know, uh, we were made fun of. Now we can turn around and say, hey, who was the nerd, man? You know, we were cool back then, but we just didn't know it. So, um, yeah, and so you have to grow up fast. You had to grow up fast. That's obvious. And so, uh, and then even being going to your foster parents, again, uh, things were better, but still could have been better. Uh, what you're saying, you know, but uh, people, we do the best that we can and go for more. What, what I'm uh, so much more proud of uh, hearing your story so far is how you broke the chain. I mean, uh, I would, I would hate to hear that you were just like your mother with your children and then finally broke the chain, which I would have been glad that you did, but I'm glad that your children are not going through what you had to go through. So I'm glad you broke uh, the chain there on, on that uh, from there that they don't have to uh, learn from it and they break it. Yeah, I know that it's absolutely the case. I mean, the, you know, never laid a hand on my kids other than I have this like all consuming. I remember like joking with my daughter. I'm like, you're so cute. I just want to bite you. Like, like that, that like total love, like that would be the closest <laughs> that my children have experienced. But what I is so interesting though, is I had a, a conversation with my son uh, around, you know, he's 
gifted and um, he said, to, but I was pushing him hard. He wanted to go to this, one of the top engineering schools. And I remember saying to him like, buddy, you're going to, if you want to get the grades to get into that school, you're actually going to have to study and work hard. And he points around our home at one point and he goes, mom, he goes, I don't need all of this. I am fine with mediocrity. And I talked to him the other day. I reminded him he's now 22 and soon mm -hmm. to graduate um, college. And I reminded him of that. And, uh, and it's true. I mean, he really has no need. He goes, but I, he said, I think it, I said, how did the apple fall so far from the tree, this drive? And he goes, I think it skips a generation. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, well, and, and it's awesome that the, the kids are, again, I'm just so glad they're, they're not had to go through that. So yeah. I'm glad that you were wise enough and they put up with enough that uh, you didn't because you hear so many stories of the it just repetitive that it goes from generation to generation and finally somebody breaks it. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know how far I went back with your mother that you finally broke it. So, uh, but I'm glad you did. And there was no doubt because of your mindset to be what it is. I have, I have no doubt that uh, you're so successful uh, in your corporate level, corporate careers. Because uh, again, you're, you've used what brought you down to be resilient to what moved you forward. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, as I said earlier, it was the, how I showed up from a work perspective, I could control that. Now it can't, you can't control all the scenarios and customers and clients around you, but again, how I showed up. And so that was the thing I leaned into. I remember my, my mom and my mom being the, you know, the woman that raised me said to me, I think it was 11 or 12. My nickname was Tori. Uh, now you're talking about your mom who raised you, the foster parent. The ones they adopted me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And, okay. And, and so she said to me, she was like, you need to do better than us. And I remember kind of thinking like, and she meant socioeconomically, mm -hmm. but for me, because what had happened, I had been, I was determined I would be better than the biology. I was born into my biological mother mm -hmm. and her family or the circumstance and socioeconomic status that I then grew up in. So she didn't have to tell me those words, utter that to me, but that was, I was determined I was going to be better than that was the thing I could prove myself and my worth. And I leaned very deeply into, so, you know, working at age, you know, 11, I think I became assistant manager of the shoe store. I worked at at 14 by 16, working in a medical office by 20 and senior manager. And at 24, I became COO. Um, so I began working and, and, you know, much earlier than, than others to have sort of had that runway to become an executive. But again, that was what I knew I could do to control and perform and be better than, as my mom had said, um, you know, the circumstance, my dad was a janitor my mom was secretary. So today janitor is called a custodial engineer. So I was a school teacher for a while and, uh, we, we, they would calling these other teachers, whatever, something, something, whatever. And so finally one day I coined for our janitor said, said, when you go by the principal and they say something about a janitor, you go, we're the custodial engineer. And so put it back on them is what I would tell them. So <laughs> um, I can, I can't stand when people are so uppity, 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 and they want to use engineer in their title, but they don't want to say janitor. I said, now you tell them you're custodial engineer. So, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, so um, I'm gonna, I'm wondering this now here. So with your early on training at 11, 14, early on, did you go to college or you developed all this? 
from your self-esteem and what you learned through the system and how uh, your mindset uh, was to, again, do better. Uh, so do you learn all this from hands-on experience and who you've been around with? Go to college and learn, combination of everything? So I did go to college, but um, I wouldn't say I learned any of my business and leadership skills from those years in college, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. That was on the job training mm -hmm. uh, where I learned a lot of that. And I often get asked to, you know, who are my mentors? And the sad thing is I haven't had very many positive mentors in my career. In fact, it's been the opposite. There's some people who have been horrific business people and leaders that instead they were kind of these reverse mentors and that I looked at them and I said, I'm going to be nothing like you. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And tried to model the behavior and language of, you know, the type of leader and business person that I wanted to be. And what's interesting is I, I did, I, I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer. I think my mom had me watch too much LA law as a there child. There you go. Um, my mom's 82. She's still, that's one of her favorite shows. <laughs> law and Order, LA Law. Oh, yeah, I love all of those. Criminal Minds. So. And so it's funny because I will often tell people like, follow your passion. My daughter, when, so my kids are 18 and 22 and my daughter asked, she's the younger of the two when she was 14, like, mom, what do you think I should do for a career? And I said, beauty, you, you need to do what you love to do and the money will follow. And she's like, well, what is that? And I said, well, you, I think you have two paths you could go down. I said, one is being a teacher and particularly with special needs because she's amazing at that and was babysitting mm -hmm. special needs kids. I said, or you could be a salesperson. I said, because your ability to talk your brother into anything and you could sell sure. ice Eskimos. There she you said, go. She said, which one makes more money? And I was like, oh, okay. That's the little bit of me, you know, in there and that drive hard. And I said, beauty, I could tell you that. I said, but it completely go against what I'm telling you around following your passion. And that's what I did. So it turned out that although I wanted to go to law school, I really enjoyed the business world, which I, I worked all throughout college and got promoted. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to take a year off before law school and stayed. And then I was helping a, a friend of mine who was a police officer who wanted to get promoted. And so she was doing her MBA. And some of the case studies that she was doing, I was helping her with. I thought, like, these are real life examples that I've personally been through in business. And so at some point I said, well, heck, I'm not going to get an MBA to pay sixty or $80,000 for something that, don't, don't get me wrong, I could still have learned, I'm sure, from that experience and great networking, but it wasn't going to contribute significantly to my career. And so I tend to, when I look at hiring people in business, I want, if there's functional skills that they need. Absolutely. I'm hiring for that. And a lot of that comes from college experience, but otherwise, particularly for hiring other leaders, I really want, you know, people that are going to be a right cultural fit and many who've had hands-on experience versus just textbook. I think nowadays, and of course, uh, many sales, I think have fallen here. You don't necessarily have to have that degree anymore. You, you just got to have the knowledge, read a bunch of uh, sales, developing books, the knowledge, again, the the go get it uh, attitude as well. And I know there's more to it than that. But still, I, I think that is one area that I think uh, you don't need a degree. You, you can have a great life. Well, like you said, without putting in $100,000 uh, to have to pay off on for most of your life. So, yeah, exactly. um yeah, and tell your daughter that uh, if she was to get into education, um, and I understand you said uh, special needs people, they are, again, I'm in a wheelchair, so I got to watch other teachers with special needs. I did uh, regular classrooms, and they are so un much underpaid. Uh, 
uh, they'll they lump all the teachers into one category that you make so much on this, you know, by years experience, degrees you got, whatever else and everything. But to me, special ed teachers need to be paid a heck of a lot more because of all the daggum paperwork they got to do with their um, IEPs and everything for each student. And they don't get paid extra for and they are so underpaid. And so uh, I hope somewhere along the line, people wake up and give them that extra money. Because oh, yeah. uh, all that work, they deserve more money. So, all right. Teachers uh, in general need to get paid more money. Who does? Teachers in general. <laughs> I agree and also disagree because I've seen how it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they're doing pretty good overall. Uh, but again, but anywhere you're going to say they deserve more money. So, well, except for these athletes, I think they're getting paid way too much now. Um, and don't get me wrong, I was wanting to be a professional athlete, so I'd want to be in that category. But but now I'm in a wheelchair, I'm not in the category. You're getting way, paid way too much to play a, a game. So, <laughs> but uh, I mean, money's got to go somewhere, then just the, uh, the owners are getting everything too. So, all right, that's a different soapbox for me to get on on that one. So, uh, all right, Victoria. So, uh, jumping in line, uh, what uh, one or two advice would you give someone trying to get out of a situation and to improve uh, what to do? So, when I think about what I'll call resilience, um, I've learned, and I'll say learned because I, I think there's an element of like resilience and the ability to handle adversity that that certainly can be innate, but I also think it's like a muscle and you can improve it over time. And as I said, I don't think I always had the healthiest level of resilience, right? Those barriers or walls that I put up um, around myself. And I had to learn how to develop a healthier way of handling adversity. And for me, first of all, kind of first step in that is being really clear on what goals and objectives I have for myself. They can be small baby steps. Like I want to lose five or 10 pounds by a certain date. It could be the career aspirations or starting a new business, whatever the goal or objective is. Number one, the second one for me is to be incredibly self-aware and self-reflective. And I remember my mom probably like into my like preteens and teens in particular, sitting me down at time for hours when she could see I would act out in a certain way or have an emotion. And she's like, Tori, like we need to figure out what is it, what is driving this? And that the ability to be really self-aware and understand where the actions, thoughts, or emotions I'm having, um, like what's caused that. And that's again, why I try and understand people's why their lived experience, what's, what's driving them. And then the next step in that the third step would be then once I have an understanding of that trying to model the positive thoughts or the actions behavior or language that I want to be or I want to see that's one step further towards that goal or objective and then the last step in that process for me is giving myself permission to fail we are going to stumble there's going to be things that come in front of us that we can't control and even if we can we're not we're imperfect human beings and so giving ourselves permission to fail stand back up, dust yourself off. If you have an emotion and I'm very quick to emotion, whether it's anger, sadness, happiness, have the emotion, but then anchor yourself back on that beginning, you know, step, which is what's my goal. What's the objective one foot, you know, you know, or one, you know, roll, um, you know, sort of, if you're in, in a wheelchair, one, one proverbial step at a time. 
I like the line. I'm going to make this as my next book uh, here. Uh, people say, um, when you walk a step in my mile or walk a mile in my step, mine's going to be when you roll a mile in my uh, tracks. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then go back. I'm, I'm, I'm big on the, the failure thing too, because if everything's always given to you and you're always moving and you're not learning, really, you're not in, you're not learning how far you can be tested on yourself, how you can go after and, and tr- in real true life, failure is going to take place. All right. Sometimes we see it like a freight train coming straight at us, but sometimes it comes and we don't know it until it's already here and past us and, and because it's unexpected. And so, yeah. So what do you do when it's unexpected? Now you take from all your other experience and training to pick it up and see what you can go for it. So, yeah, I, I'm big on the, the failure to learn to do better. And not that you want it. I mean, if you can go through something and not fail, that's awesome. But in reality, it's coming. Yeah. And I think, you know, real growth comes also from the things that make us uncomfortable. And that can be the fear of failure, but it can also be trying new and different things. And so I encourage people to lean deeply into the things that make them very uncomfortable, because only with that do these new doors open and growth comes. Well, and it may it may be in a new purpose of your in life. Okay, uh, I tell people, you know, uh, not that I want to be in a wheelchair, but it, now they give me a different way of looking at life. Again, I want to be this professional athlete beforehand. Well, that's out the door. So what are you going to do now? And so I had to learn to do things a little different, and got into teaching, and got me here now, podcasting and and stuff like that. And so uh, uh, from there, it's amazing how. Um, if we look back far enough, how we were trained to be where we're at today somewhere. Uh, when I first went to college after I got injured, a friend of mine was in the radio station at the college and he invited me to come listen. And I got involved and I ended up getting a, my own show over there. And you're talking, it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And then here I am using that experience to do this podcast. And so it's it's amazing how we look back far enough what we've done has prepared us for where we're at. So absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let right. me ask this question here. Now, um, talk about your adopted mom. You, you, you consider your real mom. Mom. I never met my real father. My mom and dad did divorce before my first birthday. He was abusive. My mom got out of it and she remarried. And that stepfather, I considered my dad. And I, I've told people before, and I've said it on podcast. He was the one that uh, busted my butt when I needed it, and I sure needed it growing up. And but he's also there that uh, hugged me and told me he loved me when I needed it, where the other one never did any of that. Okay, so let me go back to ask this question here: Did you ever reconcile with your mom? Uh, any forgiveness would happen ever communicate or talk to her anymore uh, I, any, anything like that yeah i um so i well first thing i'll say is i, I for, for me much like the way you you view your i guess i'll say stepfather you know for me my parents were those that raised me exactly uh and um and and so i'll i'll very much appreciate that and they tra- taught treated me very much and loved me very much as though i were their biological child Um, and so I, my, my, actually my adoptive parents knew my biological mother. 
Mm-hmm. And so they moved across the country after adopting me to create some time and space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, away from her. And so she would, Julie is my biological mother. And she reached out to my parents on a number of occasions. I remember she actually came to visit, I think I was probably six or seven years old. And actually she, she slapped me um, in front of my mom and my mom instantly kicked her out of the house. And it was like, Oh, okay. That's it. And um, she, she tried to stay in contact. Usually she'd ask my, my parents for money. She landed herself in jail and she was, when I think I was 11 for stabbing someone. Um, she, uh, she contracted um, AIDS, HIV um, as a result of drug use. Yeah. Probably what, whatever. And so actually she passed away many years ago. She and my adoptive mother passed away within months of one another. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, and uh, my biological grandmother um, who it's funny you talk about like the the cycle so you know my biological grandmother was um slight I've heard from my biological aunts um probably slightly physically abusive to all of the girls but I'm um, definitely mentally abusive and my my grandmother tried to get me to see Julie on her deathbed deathbed uh and I chose not to um yeah. I know that the opportunity was for Julie to probably make amends um before she passed away um, with me and what she'd done. And I wasn't in a time and place, uh, that I thought she deserved it. And I didn't, I, I kind of try and live drama free. And I just yeah. felt that invited a lot into my life at a time I had just given birth to my second child that I didn't, I didn't do it. And I don't, I don't have regrets, uh, yeah. with that, um, quite frankly. And my, my grandmother's still alive. Uh, and you know, she, the closest she could do is to sort of reconcile. She, uh, she sort of apologized because she was very aware of the abuse and did nothing about it. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I've, I've chosen not to, like I said, sort of have drama in my life. And um, and so I never got close with that side of the family. Yeah. See, uh, it, uh, with my dad, uh, like you said, I just say biological sperm donor, you know, um, because we never really met and he lived longer you know he died at 35 from cancer uh mm-hmm. but um uh, all i can say was i just hoped he got the best out of his life he could i don't hold any regrets or anything i don't have any hard will from him because uh, i end up getting a better dad so even though i never met him at one year old uh, obviously I, I never got a christmas card birthday card anything like that and so obviously i got the better dad uh, in the long run and so um uh, yep. So it, I'm, I'm like you, I, I don't have any regrets, but I, uh, only thing I did just say, you know, I, I hope he has the best life that he wanted, you know, the way he, the way he was doing. And so uh, I can see with your mom, uh, biological, um, what do we, we call her? Not mom, biological birth giver <laughs> uh, to you, uh, that, um, I would hope that she had the best life going, but again, it sounds like she didn't really change and didn't really try. It sound like so. Um, it's sad, but um, I, I'm glad again that you have broke all the chains and everything, and and uh, from there, and then glad that you're having the best life possible. And again, you've got so much that you can share with others that uh, have been through what you've been through, and show them the way that uh, they can be what's uh, considered in your book unstoppable stories of uh, people with change makers who dare to make a difference. So anyone, uh, you need a book, need something to read, 
Unstoppable. Okay, by Victoria. So, <laughs> all right, uh, get you a copy. It's about that time of the year, Christmas. They make great Christmas gifts, I bet you. So, all right, uh, Victoria. Well, thank you for being here. This has been uh, awesome meeting you. And uh, again, I'm, uh, I just get so excited when I hear people where they went and how far they've come. And, and I'm just, man, just so powerful uh, for me to, to learn and see how breaking the chain. It, I mean, it just, I'm just so glad to hear all that. So, Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to have been here today. Hey, uh, go ahead and give your website, any social media, anything you got going on uh, other than your book and how you can help people with coaching or whatever you're doing and let us know. For sure. I mean, the easiest way to get a hold of me is just through my website, which is victoria-peltier.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes so people can just look up the spelling of the last name or you can Google me on most of the first many pages that come up. Uh, and from a business perspective, certainly LinkedIn, I'm one of the early adopters uh, there you can find me to do. I do a ton of public speaking. So on a variety of topics, including overcoming adversity and resilience and diversity and inclusion, leadership, culture, all those things. Um, so find me there. The book you can access there uh, as well. I appreciate and it. And for the listeners at the moment, if you're riding down the road, uh, getting this Peltier, P-E-L-L-E-T-I-E-R. Okay. Then you can go back and Google later so yeah that's what i tell people just google professor of perseverance i'll be there so all right uh thank you again for being here and sharing your journey your story and again they say 100 years from now this stuff on the internet's there to stay so you're going to help somebody in 100 years just think of that so uh from there all right hey everybody else thank you for being here i'm dr james purdue the professor of perseverance be sure to share this out to someone that can use a good pick me up and see where the, where the beginning was and where the ending has come to at this moment. Still have plenty of endings to go here. So uh, do something today, tomorrow, something next week that's going to help you persevere past your paralysis. Thanks for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast for motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. For more information, go to Facebook at Professor of Perseverance. Visit the website at ProfessorofPerseverance.com and view the YouTube channel, Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance.